Let's, uh, let's talk today. Let's talk this morning. I have a message on my heart. I'm ready to share it with you. But, uh, but I got to tell you, I'm, I'm, I asked God, I prayed that God would stir us up a little bit. Sometimes I pray that God would just comfort our hearts. And I do want him to comfort where comfort needs to happen. But sometimes I pray God would just stir us a little bit. So I'm, I'm praying that for us this morning. We're, the title this morning is, wait, what? Wait, what? Wait, what? That's, you've heard it, you've seen it. Wait, what? And there are so many moments like that when you're reading your Bible and you say, wait, what did I just read right there? But first, I have to acknowledge something on this Sunday. It is Super Bowl Sunday, okay? I have to acknowledge this little football game that's going to happen in a little while. And uh, I'm sorry for you, those of you that aren't interested in it, but it is Super Bowl Sunday. It's the Philadelphia Eagles versus the New England Patriots. And the Super Bowl is all about winning. That's the number one goal. It's all about winning today. And if history has proven anything, all you, there's a very simple way to win a Super Bowl. It's very, very simple. All you have to do is one thing. You just got to do whatever Bill Belichick tells you to do. That is it. Now, if those of you that, did, that just went over your head, that's because you don't know who Bill Belichick is. He's the coach of the, of the New England Patriots. This guy is the winningest coach of all. He has the most Super Bowls of anybody, any other coach. He's, he's brilliant. But if you want to win... Just do what he says, and that, you, that's going to work. But actually, uh, actually, you know, I went to the Bible to find out who's going to win the game today. And, um, right, that's what we got to do. According to the Bible, the Bible mentions eagles 33 times, and it mentions patriots zero times. So I'm just saying, I don't know what that means, okay? I don't know. <laughs> uh, guess what? <clears throat> There's something even more important than the Super Bowl today. In fact, uh, I, everybody on the field that's going to be playing in the Super Bowl today would, will agree with this. There's something far more important than the Super Bowl, and that's your life, my life, how we live our life. It might be nice to win a football game, but I guarantee every one of those guys is going to be running around. In the end, they would prefer to win in life and win in a, in a football game. If you want to win in the football, follow Bill Belichick. If you want to win in life, don't follow Bill Belichick. <laughs> follow Jesus. If you want to win, if you really want to win in life, you follow the, the one who tells you how you can win, and that's Jesus. And that's actually how Jesus ended the most amazing sermon he ever preached. And it has a really catchy title. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> Imagine if I titled my sermon today, The Sermon on the Platform. You know, and be, oh, wow, this is the most boring. For, but Jesus is Jesus. I'm me. And uh, his words really, really do matter. Here's what he said, Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 and following. Just follow along with me. Our text is going to be somewhere else, but I just wanted you to see this. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, Jesus said, and doeth them, you hear these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. I recently talked about this little story that Jesus gave. We talk about it with children a lot. There's a song even, the wise man built his house upon the rock, the foolish man built his house upon the sand. There's a great way to memorize and think about this little uh, story, in a sense, that Jesus gave. But the other day I was talking with, our, with, our kid, with some kids about this, and I said, um, and the kids are smart enough to understand this, I said, if you're going to build your Legos, and you're going to build a little Lego tower, do you want to do it out on the beach, or would you rather do it on some nice hard concrete? And they were smart enough to know that you build it on concrete. Everybody knows that. And that's the point. Jesus was making a very simple point. And the point is, don't build your house on something that's shaky. Build your house on something that's firm, that's 
that's solid, that's going to withstand the test of time, that's what you build your life on. And you hear the sayings of Jesus and you do them. That's building your life. So do you want to win in marriage? Then you listen to Jesus and you do what Jesus says. That's what he's saying. Do you want to win in parenting? Then you listen to Jesus and you do what Jesus says. Do you want to win in finances? Then you listen to Jesus and you do what he says. If you want to win at work, you want to win at effecting change in your world and in your, in your place of uh, influence, then you listen to Jesus and we do what he says. And we will, Jesus says, his guarantee is, you all liken you to a wise man who builds his house and everything comes against it, but nothing can bring it down. When the storms come, and they will come for all of us. Let me just remind you, everybody's going to face some storms. You think, sometimes we think we've weathered some storms in the past. So we're good to go. But you know what? The devil would love nothing more than to ruin that marriage that's been going for 20, 30 years. The, the, you think, ah, everything's fine, we're doing good. No, the devil wants to creep in there and do something, do some damage. The storms are going to come. The life that you think, man, I've, I've made it, I'm doing pretty good here. That's exactly when you've got to watch out. Paul said, uh, watch out, take heed lest you fall. Man that thinks I'm doing okay. Oh, the, the, the storm it can still come. There's a young adult who might be thinking, I've faithfully served the Lord, but the devil wants to bring the storm and ruin that life. But Jesus says, your life will withstand every storm, and you'll come out a winner if you hear what I say and do it. Now, how many know that, and uh, we've heard our, uh, our Tom Harmon say this a lot, but how many know that's easy to preach and hard to live? That's what he says a lot. It's easy for me to stand up here and say that, isn't it? Yep, do what Jesus says, hear what Jesus says, and do it. Boy, it's easy to talk about, but boy, it's a lot different when you've got to live it. One of the reasons it's so challenging is because the commands of Jesus are so upside down to our thinking so often. We hear what he says, and they're so upside down. They don't match what we're seeing in culture. They don't match what we're seeing when we talk to other people. No one else out there is doing this stuff, it seems like. Sometimes God's word seems so foreign to the way we do things as Americans. Have you ever had a hard time adjusting to something foreign to your thinking? It's funny, I, the, thing I, the illustration I was going to use this morning, I have a real-life illustration, but I... The illustration is about traffic circles. Have you seen these? I mean, these, these European traffic circles. They have them over there in Europe, and all of a sudden they bring them to America, and they're these little circles, and we're starting to, starting to see them all over the place. But listen, this is the kind of stuff that made us leave England in the first place, okay? This is, <laughs> this is confusing. You know, you, what kind of cruel, complicated joke is this? You go up to this thing, it's supposed to be better, but it's really easy if you just go four people at a stop, and you just go when it's your turn. But this thing, everybody's going every which way, and you come up to those things, and, uh, you know, but eventually you learn, okay, when everybody gets it figured out, all right, I guess maybe it is a little quicker, you kind of get around a little better. What I was going to tell you was, this morning, somebody came in this morning and said, I got in an accident on the way to church. It was in one of those dang traffic circles, and, and I said, I know what you mean. I was just about to talk about that, so there you go, it's real. But this foreign concept, it comes to you, man, you go up to that thing and you're waiting, you're not sure what, what, what to do, and, and that's, you're kind of exactly like, wait, what, wait, wait, what, wait, wait, what? I, you're not sure what to do with this. And sometimes God's word is like that. You're not, it's foreign to our American brains. It's foreign to what we're seeing with people. You're reading along and you come to a phrase in the Bible, you come to a verse and it, and it makes you do a double take. It's a stop and think moment. And that's just what I call the wait what effect. Now, it's like, another way to illustrate this is like a pencil in water. Have you ever seen this? It's a, it's a way to uh, talk about a thing called refraction. But a pencil looks disjointed. You put that pencil in the water and it looks like it's broken. It looks like it's disjointed. It's, it's separated. Because of the differences between air and water, the, the water or the, the pencil seems like it's out of place. It doesn't make sense to us. And that's a good way to illustrate what we see in the Bible sometimes. Whenever we look at something God says, it doesn't make sense. The point is we're just viewing it through the wrong filter. 
God sees, he knows the pencil is straight, he knows it's not broken, but when we're seeing it through our lens, through the way we see things, through the water, in a sense, we're seeing it looks broken, it looks wrong, there's something wrong with this. But every time we face something in God's word, that something that seems wrong or seems not right or doesn't match up with what we're used to, it's not God's word that needs to change. It's us that needs to change our view. We need to see it from the top. We need to see it how God's seeing it. The word of God, we believe, the word of God as Christians, the word of God is infallible. That means it is incapable of making mistakes. The word infallible means incapable of making mistakes. The word of God is incapable of making mistakes as it was originally written. And it is inerrant, meaning is without error. It is infallible, it's incapable of making mistakes, and it is inerrant, it is without error. But we are challenged when we come across these moments in Scripture, these, especially what we're going to talk about this morning is a couple of paradoxes, a paradox. When you see a paradox in Scripture, you know it's a, wait, what did he just say? A paradox is this, it's a seemingly, this is from a dictionary, a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. And guess what? When you find a paradox in the Bible, it is true. And that's what we're saying. The scripture is full of paradoxes, which is interesting. Humble yourself to be exalted. Be, become weak to be strong. Empty yourself to be filled. There's all, et cetera, et cetera. There's quite a few of these in there. There's these almost look like they're contradicting statements. And you say, wait, what did he just say? We're going to look at two of them this morning that I'm excited to share with you. And I will say this, that the further our world gets away from the Word of God and the further our world gets away from the Lord, the more these things seem paradoxical, the more these seem, things seem like mysteries. But our aim when we come across these should be to figure it out and then adjust our thinking to what it says, like Jesus said, and then do it, just like Jesus said. And if we'll do that, we'll win. So here are these two scriptural paradoxes that I want to share with you this morning. The first one, number one is this. If you want to live, die. If you want to live, die. Is that paradox enough for you? I think this is the ultimate one in the Bible when you think about it. It's one of the, I think it's the main one out of all the paradoxes. It's the grandpappy of all paradoxes. Here's the setting at one of the times that this paradox is given, because actually this paradox really is given in all four of the Gospels, and really in other places in a different way. But in all four of the Gospels, Jesus said this, which, mean, which tells me that the disciples, when they were writing this, they, they got this. This was something that was big to them. They heard Jesus say this. This was something he wanted them to know. The one we're going to look at is in Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to start in verse 21. Matthew 16, 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. So you, you, you see what's happening. Jesus is saying, listen guys, we're about to go into Jerusalem and it's going to be bad. It's going to be really bad. They're going to take me and beat me, and they are going to accuse me of things, and then they're going to kill me, but I'm going to rise again. I'm going to rise again three days later. And so they're hearing this, and Jesus predicted everything that would happen, but verse 22, we see good old Peter. Peter did not like what Jesus was saying. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Now look at the setting here. Jesus explains what's coming for him, the suffering, his death and resurrection. And then it says Peter took him and rebuked him. The word took has the idea of taking someone close or maybe pulling him aside. So It's almost the picture here is that Peter walks to Jesus and grabs him and turns him to him or, or pulls him to the side and begins to rebuke Jesus. The same word as when an official, this word rebuke, the same word as when an official will rebuke someone, a, a, somebody in charge. 
somebody in leadership. So now Peter's put himself above Jesus, and he begins to rebuke Jesus for what Jesus had just said. Now, I think, I think the spirit of Peter was, uh, was sincere. I think, I think it was maybe more along these lines, you know, pulling Jesus aside and saying, <clears throat> with all due respect, Jesus, with all due respect, there is no way we're going to let this happen. You are not going to die. We're going to be by your side. And that's where he was going to go with this. But Jesus actually cuts him off because if you'll notice, it says Peter began to rebuke him. Jesus cuts him off. He doesn't let him finish. And um, remember this for a moment, though. Remember this scene. Kind of take a picture in your mind. Peter pulling Jesus aside and rebuking Jesus. Because think about that. Peter forgot something. He forgot that he was following Jesus, and it wasn't the other way around. Jesus wasn't following him. He was, he was not seeing how something Jesus said could possibly be true. He said, it's basically, wait, what did you just say? No way. It didn't fit into Peter's concept of how things were supposed to be. This is not how the king is supposed, this is not how the king thing is supposed to go. We're supposed to overtake the Romans. You're supposed to be on the throne. We're supposed to be with you. That's how this is supposed to go. That's what I think is supposed to happen. And, and that's, uh, that's, this was not fitting into Peter's mold. But Peter was doing something that we all subtly do at times, every one of us. We tell Jesus how things should go. We tell th- Jesus how things should go in our life. We make him follow us instead of us following him. We say oh, well, Jesus, you're like this, and so this is what... No, no, our job is just to surrender and say, Jesus, you're in charge. How does Jesus react to this moment, though? What does Jesus do? Well, it's pretty severe. Verse 23, he turned and said to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense to me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. So now notice this. It says that the posture in this is given. God tells us uh, what was going on almost with their body language a little bit here. It says Jesus turned. So it looks like what Jesus did was he turned his back on Peter. So Peter pulls him aside. He's standing there with him. and With all due respect, Jesus, no way. And then Jesus says, Peter, get thee behind me. That's the imagery that, that we're seeing here. He, and then he says, Peter, Uh, He calls him Satan. Satan, get thee behind me. Jesus had to do something in this moment to shock Peter out of the thinking that he was in. He was, there's something that was going on under the surface in Peter's mind, and Jesus had to shake him up a little bit. what, What Jesus said that he was doing was he was putting man's ways above God's ways. You're seeing this from a manly perspective and not a godly perspective. You're seeing this from a temporal perspective and not an eternal perspective. You're not just following what I say and listening to what I say and saying we're with you to the end. What you're saying is, Jesus, you've got to do it this other way because this is how it's supposed to be done. You've done something, you've done something, Peter, that the devil would do. You're, you're listening to the devil. And so Jesus shakes him by even saying, basically, you're listening to Satan. Now, we know that God's ways are always better than our ways. And we have to remember this, especially when we're coming to Jesus and thinking we got everything together. But Jesus then gives everyone around, after, right after this moment, he stops and he, he says, then he said to his disciples, and here's what he does, he gives them a paradox. And this paradox, again, is repeated in all the Gospels, and so the, he, Jesus takes this moment to again give this paradox to these guys. Jesus says, if any man will come after me, here's what he has to do, let him deny himself, take up his cross, And follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Wait, what? (laughs) To save your life, you must lose it. In other words, if you really want to live this life, you've got to die. You've got to lose your life. If you want to win, you've got to lose. We sometimes call this dying to self, or for this generation, dying to selfie, okay, whatever you want to call it, but dying to self. What does Jesus mean by this, and and how does it work? 
So what does it mean? Jesus explained dying in three ways. He kind of gave these three ways. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Denying yourself. Denying yourself is more than self-denial. We talk about self-denial, self-denial, self-denial. Self-denial is good. It's very good, actually. But self-denial is not eating that candy bar that you really want to eat. That's self-denial. Good job. Denying self is different. It's above that. It's giving your body, your whole body, for the Lord's work. It's not just denying yourself something that you'd like to eat. It's actually giving yourself to God. It's going where he sends you. It's being who he wants you to be. It's saying what he wants you to say. It's living how he wants you to live. It's just giving yourself to whatever he says and to whatever he does. And then taking up your cross. Jesus said, you deny yourself, you take up your cross. Taking up your cross literally is being willing to be tortured and die for following Jesus. And remember, when Jesus is telling these guys, you need to be willing to take up your cross, each one of those guys was going to die as a martyr, except John. But he would be tortured and and abused as well. But all of those guys, every one of those disciples, Jesus knew what was coming for them. So he was telling them, take up your cross, be willing to be tortured, and die for following Jesus. Now, it's bad enough in this moment, if you think about it, that Jesus is telling them, he just told them, I'm about to go into Jerusalem, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to be tortured, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise again. So we say, wow, now Jesus is telling them that he is going to go die, and he's going to be taken away from them, but now he's saying that they basically need to Be ready to die as well for him. But you know what? I've noticed something, and these guys found out about this, and this is the truth. It's easier to die for Jesus. It's easier to die for Jesus when you already have. It's easier to die for Jesus when you already have. See, what we're talking about right now is a death to self. We're talking about dying to self. Once you die to yourself, well, then the next step is just dying for Jesus, a physical death It can be done. Now, I'm not saying I want to do it, and I'm not saying God's calling necessarily any of us to do it, but he might. Because here's the deal. I've seen a lot of dead people. I have. And I don't like it. But one of the thing is, one thing I notice that's common among every dead person that I've seen, they don't care about anything out here. They don't care about things that living people care about. They don't care about their stocks and how things are going there. Dead people don't care about houses. Dead people don't care about cars. Dead people don't care about their reputation. They don't care about their future. They don't care about all this other stuff. None of this matters to a dead man. In fact, they don't even care about somebody killing them because they're already dead. And so that's the same way. If we have already died to ourselves with Jesus, then the next step would just be, Lord, I'll live for you. I'll do whatever you say. And if, and if it be that I die by the sword or I die on a cross, then so be it. And these guys were willing to do that. It's really a laying down of your life, whatever that may mean for us. And then Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. To follow is active. To follow implies walking away from something. If you're going to follow somebody, you're actually leaving something else. It's going after Jesus. It's a vibrant, active, ever-increasing relationship with Jesus. It's following him around and listening to him and hearing what he's saying. It's pursuing him. It's, it's being right behind Jesus. When, when, when the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart, the word after actually means behind. Basically, the, the picture is that David was one of those kinds of guys that was after Jesus, after God, everywhere God went, David went. He was just right there trying to listen to God. He was a man after God's own heart. He was always near the heart of God, trying to listen and trying to be near the heart of God. Following Jesus is, I'm, stopped going, I'm stopping to go my way, and now I'm going your way, Jesus. Jesus was saying that a requirement for following Jesus then is to die to your plans and take on his plans. Die to your desires and take on his desires. Die to your reputation and take on his reputation. Die to your thoughts about getting that person back that hurts you. Die to that and listen to Jesus. 
Die to your thoughts about what success looks like and take on God's version of success. Die to your thoughts about parenting and take on his thoughts about parenting. Die to your expectations of how my life is supposed to go or how things are supposed to be. Die to those expectations and take on God's expectations. Take on Jesus' expectations. But remember what Jesus said. He said, um, if you want to live, then die. So the point is, if you die, you'll actually live. So there's a promise connected here. There's actually a great benefit to dying to self. So how does that work? How does life come out of a death to self? Well, here's the astonishing thing that every disciple will, will agree, and every disciple knows. Everybody who's followed Jesus and abandoned everything and given everything to Jesus and losing their life, they know this, that losing your life makes a person happier. Dying makes a person happier. Giving your life to Jesus doesn't take from your life. It actually adds to your life. In fact, it completes the life that you were created for. In this upside-down world, you often, we often can't see how great it is until we're actually living in it or there and experiencing the daily connection with Jesus and the daily power with Jesus and, and the things that are happening. So it's hard for me just to give you uh, two plus two equals four because God does things in different ways. But it's always, always better, and every disciple will tell you that. In another passage, Jesus describes this like this. He said it's like a seed that goes into the ground. See, when you put a seed into the ground, that seed must die. Now, when the seed dies, it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing that that seed dies. As a matter of fact, you set that seed free to become what it was meant to be. And it, it, it flourishes. And that's, that's the point. If you'll die like that little seed and you'll give your life to the Lord, then actually you grow and flourish far more than you ever could have dreamed before. Think of it this way. The opposite of dying to self is living for self. And that always ends up in discouragement and disappointment. If you or I make our life all about pleasing ourselves, if that's what we're going to pursue, if that's where joy is found, if that's where winning is found, in just pleasing ourselves and giving everything to ourselves, read the book of Ecclesiastes and you'll find out that that doesn't work. We are guaranteed to be miserable if we have a self focus in our life. I've read hundreds of stories of Christians and talked to hundreds of Christians, people that have become Christians. Many of you right here in this room. And I've read books by Spurgeon and Finney and Hudson and Wesley and Carmichael and Elliot and Wilberforce and on and on and on that goes. All these people, all these Christians that gave up something. They gave of themselves. They surrendered their life. They just put it down there. And each of these people, none of them regret dying to themselves. Not one. They don't regret giving everything to Jesus. They don't regret just saying, God, wherever you take me, I'll go. In fact, they all really have a, a, um, a common thread, and that is that life really didn't get started until I gave everything to Jesus. Until I died to myself, I really didn't live. I didn't even know what living actually was until I was following the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There's a biblical word that actually is used in the Old Testament and it's used throughout Christian history the old-timers used to use, and I wish we used it a lot more. A word for this. It's called consecration. Consecration. And this word consecration, we call it a lot of times surrender now, giving of yourself. The Old Testament, the, it means uh, setting yourself apart to God, away from something and to God. In other words, dying to yourself and your plans and, and, your, and to be in a position to do whatever God says. D.L. Moody, he was famous for consecrating his life, and he said this famous quote, everybody quotes him, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. By God's help, I aim to be that man. D.L. Moody is quoted for that, but actually he's not the one who first said it. It was actually those words that rung in D.L. Moody's head that a a pastor that was in England spoke to him in private when they were talking, and he said that, and then later, about a year later, he met up with the man, and he said, please, I, I'm trying to remember that. It shook my life. 
Could you please tell me the statement again? Because I've been thinking, I've been trying to think of the exact words, and I, I got the gist of it. And they gave it to him, and, and then D.L. Moody started using it everywhere. The world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. By God's help, I aim to be that man. This call to consecration is what stuck with D.L. Moody all of his life. He, and and D.L. Moody did more as a dead man for Jesus than he ever could have done living for himself. Would we agree here? Now, amazing always begins with consecration. Winning in life begins with consecration. Now, I'm not suggesting that God wants everyone to work in full-time ministry. But he does ask every disciple, every person, every Christian, to give 100% of their life to him. It was in high school, actually, when I heard God's call to die to myself. And I remember those moments sitting in a, in a seat just like you and hearing people preach and, and looking at the word of God as he was preaching. And I remember the, the Holy Spirit just using that in my life to talk to my heart. And the big question then, as I just said, God, I give 100%. I want to hold back nothing. I want to give you everything. I want to go where you go, where you want me to go. I want to say what you want me to say. I want to do that. I'm not saying I'm perfect. I haven't been since then. I still have to renew this, renew my mind. But I do remember that moment. The big question for me was, Jesus, what do you want me to do? That question is a powerful question if we'll ask it. Jesus, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do right now? What do you want me to do in my life? What do you want me to do? What Just, just what? What? What do you want me to do? That's a consecration question right there. I'm surrendering. What do you want me to do? And I remember there being a death to me and anything I was thinking about or wanting, and just a full surrendered and consecration, Lord, what do you want me to do? And I remember going back to work, and I worked with... Um, at a car wash then, and I was, you know, with a bunch of young guys. And, but I remember it changed the way I interacted with them. I remember I was dead then to the pull that a lot of these guys had on me before that. Some of the things I was maybe being pulled in certain directions, I was dead to that. It was like a cord was cut. And all of a sudden, it was just, Lord, what do you want me to do? I really don't care what those guys think. I really don't care what other people are saying. I really don't care what the world's doing. I really don't care. It's really all about what do you want. And again, there's still a daily dying that must take place, but it all starts with that moment where we say, God, what do you want me to do? A consecration moment. And I w- but this begs the question when I think about this, dying to self, if it's so great and if it's so amazing, why aren't more people doing it? <laughs> Because dying is not easy. Everyone avoids death. We even avoid the word death. We don't even like to say that word. Lots of people, lots of people want Jesus to inspire them. But not too many people want Jesus to interfere with them. They buy in to the whole Jesus thing. They buy in. They believe in Jesus. They buy in, but they don't sell out. Many people say they follow Jesus but actually they're more like Peter in that moment in the story here, and they're inviting Jesus to follow them. Jesus, you're great. You have some amazing words. You're a very nice guy. So please, just keep inspiring me and keep telling me things. Whenever God wants to work through someone's life, he always begins with consecration. Jesus gives the invitation to all, Do you want to live? Do you really want to live? Do you want to win? Then die. You got to die. You got to give me 100%. Now, the second wait what message, the second wait what statement runs in a similar vein. I'm going to give three more tonight, by the way, at 6 p.m., but I'm going to end with this second one here. But number two, if you want to receive... If you want to receive, then give. If you want to receive, then give. I'm asking everybody this morning, by the way, as I get ready to launch into this one, I'm asking everybody to choose maybe one of these that you can take to the Lord today and tomorrow and this week and say, God, which one are you asking me to do? Are you asking me to die and 
so that I can live? Are you asking me to give so that I can receive? When you see this, it's, this is another one of those wait what moments. This passage comes from the life of Paul that we're about to look at. But I want to set it up real quick. It's in Acts chapter 20. But Paul has poured out his life for some very special people in the amazing coastal city of Ephesus. And Ephesus was a powerful port city. And ships would come in all the time from people all over the world. There was a lot of wickedness in that city. But Paul came in there and he started a church. And he started witnessing to people and talking to people. But not only that, he actually decided that he was going to work um, himself. He wasn't getting paid by any, or wasn't getting any uh, love offerings from churches. There were no churches there. He had to supply his own need, and so he began working. He was a tent maker by trade in the past, and so he opened a, a tent maker shop or worked with some others there. We're not exactly sure, but he began to make tents there in Ephesus. And one of the most amazing moments in my wife and I's life was to be able to stand in the ancient city of Ephesus and see the marketplace where Paul would have been selling his tents. We were looking all around and seeing what, just trying to imagine Paul living there. And every day and every night he would go and talk to people and teach people. And and, uh, day, night, all hours, and he mentions this in this passage, but he was just giving his life for these people. And, and um, it was, it's the, the impact of Paul is still felt there. As a matter of fact, we were walking, and our tour guide said, come over here, I want you to see this marble stone here in the sidewalk. And we came over there and looked in the marble stone, and there was a Christian wheel. It's kind of like the ichthus fish. It's the ichthus wheel. And in this, it means Jesus Christ, God's son, and he showed us how it works. But it was the secret way that Christians, after Paul, after he had started that church there, and then Christianity was there in Ephesus, it was a secret way for people to come and Christians to meet together. You'd come walking into the port city and just stand right there on that, or near that, uh, Ixus wheel, that somebody just engraved. It looks like just a kid's, uh, you know, play thing or something, something they would do for a game. And they would stand there, and then uh, pretty soon you'd have other Christians come on over to meet you and saying, hey, I noticed you're standing here. Are you a believer? Yes. And they'd just quietly, during times of, um, uh, turn, during times of all kinds of uh, things coming against them, they were able to meet together. And, and the, the impact of Paul is still felt. And, and, of course, the impact of Paul is still felt even in our day. But here he is. He's leaving He's leaving uh, Ephesus. He's, he's already had to leave, being forced out because of persecution. And he's coming back to meet with the church leaders. And he, he can't even go back into the town. And he has to hurry up and move on to the next place after he's been there for so long. But he loves these people. And he calls the church leaders out to the coast, and they're going to talk. And these are, this is a big goodbye. And this is the only time that the, the, the biographer, Luke, actually writes what Paul said to Christians. Everything else in the book of Acts and all of that is to unbelievers. But this is the time you see this gentle, emotional side of Paul talking and teaching like a pastor. And these people, I can imagine, just gathering there saying, our, our leader, our pastor is leaving. We don't know what's going to happen after this. I mean, you're the anchor for our faith, and you're the one who's led us to Christ. You're the one who started this work. I, we're not sure what's going to happen. I'm sure there was all sorts of thoughts and emotions. And I can almost see the tears as I read. But Acts chapter 20, we're going to take up the end of this little uh, talk that he gives to them. Acts 20 and verse 31, he says, Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. Paul says, listen, guys, I know God's going to strengthen you when I'm gone. God can, God can take you. His word will carry you. You stay close to him. Then he reminds them of what they need to keep doing as he's gone. And basically, it's just reminding them, do what I did. Not that they should follow his example instead of Christ, but that they would follow him 
as he followed Christ. Verse 33, I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. I haven't asked for any of this stuff, anything. Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities. I worked myself and to them that were with me. And verse 35, I have showed you all things, how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak and, and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Through all the labor, the giving, and the tears, there was one statement that kept Paul going, and he wanted this statement to really keep them going as well. That is a, a statement by Jesus, that Jesus, when Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. In other words, there is more blessings or happiness. There is more happiness in giving than getting. He wanted this to be their motto as they served the Lord. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Let me ask you something, everybody here this morning. Do you believe those words? Do you believe it's better to give than to get? Do you believe it's better to give than to receive? Well, how many in here believe that money cannot buy happiness? You believe money cannot buy happiness let me ask you a question then. Why do you want more? Why do you want more then? I, you know, that's, a, I, that's mean to do, to put you in that spot, I know. But think about it. Why do you want more? Sometimes we usually want more because we do think there's some type of happiness it can add to our life. See, the common belief is more is more. <laughs> the more you give away, the less you have. That seems pretty standard. And that certainly is my first thought, I'll tell you that. And of course, let me just say this, being wealthy is a lot more comfortable than being poor. I get that. I understand that. Uh, that's, I would choose that any day over the poor thing. But Jesus is saying something that doesn't fit in our culture here. It's a wait what moment. It's the paradox of the kingdom. There is more happiness in giving things away than getting, than giving our time away and giving our energy away and giving our, our resources away. There is more joy. There is, it is better. It is more, it is, you're more happy if you're a giver than a taker. In the 16th century, Nicholas Copernicus challenged the belief that the earth was the center of the universe. Some of you remember back in the 16th century, right? 16th century, Nicholas Copernicus. This guy, he was arguing some crazy thing that the earth revolved around the sun rather than the other way around. And when, when it came that everybody realized, they called it the Copernicus Revolution because it revolutionized the scientific world. It turned the scientific world upside down. It's not what everybody thought. But let me just say something, everybody here. We all need a Copernicus revolution in our life. We each need to come to terms with this. This is a fact, that the world doesn't revolve around us. The world does not revolve around me. I need to come to a, re a revelation and a revolution that my life should revolve around Jesus. It's fine when you're two months old uh, to have the world revolve around you. You know, as somebody said, we're spoon-fed on the front end and diaper-changed on the back end. And every, it seems like the whole world is just here to cater to me and everything that happens with me. But it's a big problem when a bunch of adults think that the world revolves around them. And we do need a Copernicus revolution in our life. Jesus is saying, look outward. See the needs of people. It's better. Guys, listen, I've tried to show you what it's like these last three years. It's better to be a giver than a receiver. It's more happy. And in the end, I'd much rather have it that way. So you guys do what I did. Be givers out there. Go show people what giving is all about. Look out. See the needs. It's better to be a giver. Jesus may ask us to deny ourselves some vacations. Jesus may ask us to deny ourselves a bigger house or a fancy clothes. He may ask us to deny some dinners out, some cars, etc. Jesus may ask us to give up time that we would give to family. <gasps> no, Jesus might ask us to give up a little time from our family. Jesus wants us to spend time with our family, yes. But there are times when he might ask you to 
Give up some time with your family to, do, to be a giver. To give up time that you could spend with your friends or entertainment or sleep or on your iPhone or whatever. Jesus may ask you to give up some of that time. Remember the widow with the prophet Elisha in the Old Testament? Remember that whole story? She's got nothing. Her husband dies. She's left with a son, and she has nothing to eat. She's running out of food every single day, and they're rationing the food, and then they're down to their very last drop. And Elisha comes in, and she tells him, I've got this very last drop. Please, I hope God can do something. And Elisha says, give it to me. I want to eat. I'm hungry. Can you give me that? You want me to give you the last drop of my food? You want me to give that to you? Elisha, yes, give that to me. I'm hungry. And it was really that moment that she had to decide whether to surrender. And her son is over here dying of starvation. She's not just choosing for herself. She's choosing for him. And she has to put God's ways first. Somehow in her faith, she had to understand this. And I was thinking about that, and I was just imagining, what if I did that in church? You know, a little widow comes in here. It's her last bit. And I just, after church, I said, ma'am, I know it's your last bit of food, but you've got to feed me. You all look at me like, this guy is crazy. Wait, what? Did he just say? Give everything? And, and yet that's the, that's the thing Jesus is saying. Give, give. Remember the little other widow Jesus told about? She had her two little mites and she gave everything. Jesus' world is upside down. Don't miss this. There's a wonderful promise for those who are givers. Because don't miss what Jesus says here. It's more, you're more happy. You're more blessed. You're more blessed if you give than you receive. Happier as the giver. In the upside-down world of Jesus, self-denial leads to self-fulfillment. Think about it. You might regret being a consumer all your life, but you'll never regret being a giver at the, in the end. You'll never regret that. Selfishness will actually rob us of joy in the end. It will rob us of peace. People spend so much effort trying to get in life that they miss out on what matters really most, what really brings the blessings. Do you see how this system of Jesus works? Are are we beginning to see this? We give our time, we give our energy, we give our resources where God wants us to give, and then we're happier than if you would have held on to everything. The more you give away, the more you'll enjoy what you have. R.G. Letourneau came to his pastor as a young man, and he said, Pastor, I want to be a missionary or a pastor or something. I'm so feeling the call and the passion to follow Christ. I want to do whatever Christ wants me to do. I want to be a pastor or a missionary. How do I do it? And the pastor saw something very special in him, and he said, R.G., this is what exactly what his words were. He says, God needs businessmen too. God needs businessmen too. And you know, that statement carried him his whole life, he said. He, be, he went on to manufacture and invent earth-moving equipment. He had plants on four continents. He was a multi-millionaire. But before he got and accumulated all that wealth over time, he made this commitment year after year to be a giver and to increase his giving more and more each year till at, till at the point later on in his life, he and his wife we're living on 10% and giving God 90%. And he's, he built colleges and he, for, for the Lord and Christian colleges and gave to churches and, and he and mission work all over the planet. I'm telling you, these are the kind of people that understand early on, even when it's a sacrifice, even when it feels like a sacrifice maybe at times, that we must give to God. He said these words many times. He's famous for this quote. It's not how much of my money I give to God but how much of God's money I keep for myself? That's the real question. Jesus is not necessarily, let me, hear me please. Jesus is not necessarily saying to hand over everything you have right now to him. But Jesus is saying to hand over control of everything you have right now. People love this next verse I'm about to look at real quick. Luke 6.37. Judge not that you be not judged. Woo, we love that verse. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you shall be forgiven. But, every, but look at the next verse right after that. Verse 38, give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together, and running over shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet withal, it shall be measured to you again. The picture there, coming and giving to 
your bosom is uh, a farmer out there with his robe, and he had his big apron on, had a big pocket in the front, and he would cast the seed out. And the more you get rid of that seed, Jesus is saying, the more God's going to fill that pocket back up with more and more. This is, this is how the back, upside down world of Jesus works. Not, it doesn't say wealthy people give. It says everyone give. What will happen? You're going to receive it back much more. Jesus is saying this. Givers are not losers. <laughs> Givers are not losers. They're winners. In the end, your pockets will be filled. This is why, this, by the way, real quick, this is why I don't like talking about giving like it's a sacrifice. I don't think we should ever say sacrificial giving, to be honest with you. Because it's not a sacrifice. Is it a sacrifice if I'm going to get back more than what I put in? It's not a sacrifice. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you back so much more. In this backward, upside-down world of Jesus, this paradoxical world, this world that just doesn't make sense to us because we're human and we're Americans and we think getting is getting. And Jesus is saying, no, giving, giving is getting. Sometimes walk around this church, this church campus, and I, the thing that hits me most is thinking about the time that people spend here working with children and loving on people and, and helping people and teaching people for sometimes nothing, most of the time nothing, but there's for something. The people that are giving and they're missing vacations maybe sometimes and they're not getting as nice of a car that they would like and maybe, the, like I said, a few dinners out or something. You're missing some of those things that maybe you would have liked. But I, and I look at that building and I said, man, Somebody was a giver. Somebody, somebody gave their life to Jesus. Somebody had this mentality that Jesus is talking about. They think it. They know it. They, they feel it. It's more blessed to give than to receive. To give my time, my energy, away from maybe things I'd like to do. And I think about the souls that are going to line up in heaven. We're, we're standing in heaven someday, and the line that's going to be standing in just saying... Uh, I'm waiting to talk to that guy because he was one of those guys who gave so that I could be saved. And I may be a person from the Philippines and you gave to mission work to help our missionaries to the Philippines. Maybe somebody from Ukraine, maybe somebody from India, and maybe somebody from San Joaquin County and they're going to walk up there, stand in line, and they say, I'm just waiting to stand and talk to that guy right there. Because he had this, he had this sense, he had this uh, heart that wanted to be a giver. He knew what Jesus was talking about. If we want to win, we've got to give. If we want to gain, we've got to lose. In the upside-down world of Jesus, this makes, us, this makes so much sense. But so often, we're looking at it through the glass. We're looking at it wrong. I don't know what you're dealing with today, but let me end with this. The answer for even the problem that you might be facing right now or the situation you're in or the emotional struggle that you're in even the answer for that might just be in consecration. Because sometimes we don't just need another book or another truth or another thing that somebody says or something, some pat on the back. Sometimes what we just need is to go down on our face before God and surrender our life and say, what do you want me to do? And that moment, that's the beginning of something that, that flourishes in our life. It's sometimes just looking outward and saying, how can I be a giver and not just be a taker? thinking of others and not being so inward focused. Let's all bow our heads.